I'm David W. Berner, and this is The Writer's Shed. Hi, everyone. It's a Thursday afternoon here inside the shed. We've got some uh, clouds around today in the Chicago area, a little breezy, too. We were in the 80s yesterday. Today, we are in the 60s, so welcome to the Midwest weather. This is the kind of stuff we get uh, all the time in the spring. It doesn't know which season it wants to be. Um, but it's not a bad day. It's it's not a bad day, and I, I hate to dwell on the weather, but um, it is the forefront of what goes on in the Midwest this time of year. Hey, I'm just back from a great book signing at Harvey's Tales Books in Geneva, Illinois. We did a signing there for my book, my memoir, Walks with Sam. Uh, it's a great bookstore in Geneva, Illinois. It's in an old Victorian home. It's just wonderful, and I love those independent bookstores. Working on some material now for books uh, in 2022. I've got a uh, book coming out called Sandman, A Golf Tale. It's a novella, and I'm excited about it because I have been asked so many times because I'm a avid golfer whether I was ever going to write a book about golf, and I was quite reluctant because there's so many very good golf writers out there. But this story came to me. Um, actually, out of real life, it's not a nonfiction story. It's a fictional story, but it was inspired by an incident uh, and a gentleman that I got to know a little bit on a golf course where I played. And um, look for it. It's coming out in the spring of uh, 2022 from Round Fire Books, Sandman. So a little last-minute work on that. Uh, we've got some uh, cover designs coming here shortly and looking forward to seeing those. In this uh, edition of uh, The Writer's Shed, we're going back to the writers reading their work. And these are four writers who have uh, been published within the Writer's Shed Stories volumes. And they've got four portions of stories to share with you today. I'm always happy to do this. I wish we could do this even more often. But uh, these four stories are coming your way. And we'll talk about those in a minute. And after that, I'm going to do something I have also been reluctant to do. But I've asked, uh, been asked now a few times um, from listeners of the podcast to, to tell a little bit of my story, um, who I am, what I am, why I'm doing this, uh, my writing background, my uh, journalism background, whatever. So I'm going to take a few minutes and do that. I feel a little bit narcissistic about it all, to tell you the truth. But uh, I've been asked, so I'm going to try to do that for you after we listen to these wonderful stories. And one last thing before we get to the stories here, a couple last things. If you ever want to uh, get hooked up with the newsletter from Writer's Shed Press, you can do that very easily. Writershedpress at gmail.com. Send me a note and we will do that. Writershedpress at gmail.com. Also, check out the new uh, writing experiment, I like to call it, that I'm doing on the new uh, Substack platform, Personal Essays. It's called The Abundance. It really is kind of a look at life as it is now. When you're beginning to age, uh, and you know you can really put that in perspective for anybody uh, in their in their journey of life, where they are when they're aging, because we're all aging at some point, right? So it's called the abundance. Easy to find the abundance. If you go to Substack, you can find it there. I'd love for you to to join me with that and just uh, follow along. So let's get to the writers here on this uh, writers reading their work. Susie Jackson. We'll read from her story, a jury story. Cody Sexton is reading a bit from Just a Little While Longer. 
Ileana Jankova is going to read a piece, at least part of a piece, from What If, the name of her personal essay. And Floyd E. Sullivan reads from Composite. And those four stories are coming your way. And then I'll tell you a little bit about me at the end of it all. But let's get to the stories first. Susie Jackson is up first. I was reminded how deeply lonely it could be to raise a baby alone. The subtle resentment and even hostility from neighbors who acted like you were an affront to family values. How people decided that's who you were and nothing more. How you'd say something, but they assumed you really meant something else or that you were simply trying to get attention. The case left me feeling run over daily. With every fiber of my being, I could relate to feeling invisible and unheard. It's like that recurring dream where you're screaming, but no sound comes out. In addition to numerous clinic visits, mom called a hotline referred to as the mommy pager. The slick defense attorney would mock the words mommy pager like he was the bully on the playground calling you a crybaby. Mommy Pager was the nickname the hospital staff used for the helpline parents could call 24-7 with questions, like in the middle of the night with a feverish infant. The defense attorney sought to make light of the Mommy Pager, to trivialize it so that the lackluster response given to this mom reaching out for help didn't seem so off-base. Oh, it's just the Mommy Pager. How could anyone think that was important? I cringed every time he said, Mommy Pager. It felt like a gut punch. I stared hard at Mom, trying to see if it bothered her, too. After weeks of testimony and cross-examination, we learned this seven-month-old baby had a cold that wouldn't go away, worsening symptoms, and a fever off and on for a month. They checked for an ear infection and for pneumonia, but found neither. Somehow, tragically, whatever infection was in this baby went into her blood, then traveled to her brain, causing bacterial meningitis and severe brain damage. After all the calls and visits, no one saw it coming. This chain of events happened over four years before we set foot in the courtroom. At this point in time, the child was five years old, partially deaf, blind, feeding through a tube, breathing through another tube, unable to walk. Her mother and a team of nurses cared for her at home in a tiny apartment that now looked like a hospital room. We saw photos, videos, and even got to meet the child in person. Her nurses testified that mom dressed her like a little princess every day. Seeing the love for this sweet baby girl was the uplifting part. But being subjected to the lawyer shenanigans was the low point. We saw lots of lawyer shenanigans. There were parades of charts, visual aids, timelines, and awkward presentation fails. One especially painful part for mom and me was the daycare barrage of questioning. If your daughter was sick, why was she at daycare on this day? The attorney grilled the mother and also the grandmother, who barely spoke English. Have you read the daycare policy of Little Angel's Daycare? Let's blow it up on a giant screen so we can all see the rules. Would you agree this was the policy? You knew this was the policy, right? Then are you saying you broke the rules, the daycare lied, or your baby wasn't sick that day? 
they were trying to prove that the baby wasn't sick the whole time. In this family, the mom worked first shift, and the grandmother started later in the afternoon. And still, they got the baby to six doctor appointments in two weeks. Did these lawyers have a clue what it meant to be a working family? When I looked up from taking notes in my court-provided blue binder, I stared laser beams of disgust at the lawyers and rays of light to a mother who I felt for deeply. Other than my imaginary eye powers, I was helpless until we could deliberate. You know he wants me to forget about you, don't you? Maybe you should. He knew he wasn't really talking to anyone, but ever since she died it had made things a little easier to pretend that she was still there. At first he pretended that she was only visiting friends or picking up some last-minute item needed to finish that night's supper, but he had to stop that mental game of denial. It was getting too easy and it frightened him. He thinks I'm crazy, aren't you? He didn't say anything for a while. I guess maybe life is for the living is what he finally said but didn't believe. You have to move on, Frank. I can't stay here forever. I know, I know. Jesus Christ, I know. But it's only for a little while, just a little while longer, please. He got up from the table and poured himself a cup of coffee. Is that my cup, she asked. How much longer are you going to keep my things, Frank? It's been over a year now. He just stared at her. He could see the details of her face were beginning to blur. He had a hard time remembering what she even looked like. It was getting harder every day. Tomorrow he would have to find her picture, the one where she was all smiles. The one she always said was the only picture of herself she ever liked. Kevin would help him find it. He would ask him when he came over. Damn it, Helen. He shouted, slamming an open palm down onto the counter. Don't you understand? It would just make things easier on you is all. Easier. Easier to what? Forget about you? He asked, his voice cracking. No. Is that what you want, Helen? For me to forget about you? God knows that's what Kevin wants. He took another sip of coffee. It's not forgetting, Frank. It's moving on. Moving on to what, Helen? You were everything. You were my life, my hate, my dreams. All that's gone now. There's nothing to move on with. You can't grieve forever, Frank, or you really will go crazy. Good. I want to suffer, Helen. I want to go mad with grief. I want to feel the pain of your loss every morning when I wake up until the moment I fall asleep. Tears were forming in his eyes as he walked back to the table they shared every morning for 29 years and sat down across from her. No one said anything. They sat in silence together, and that was enough for them. He wanted to say so much, but found the silence too oppressive, and it strangled the words right out of his throat. I know you're dead, but I can't do this. Sure you can, Frank. Just let all the pain and grief be replaced by the good times we had together. It was a beautiful life we had together, filled with so much love. Sometimes I, sometimes I thought we would drown in it, and we were always there for each other. You were so good to me, Frank. I don't think I could have loved anyone else as much. Stop. There was never not in 29 years of marriage a moment I regretted. Please. He felt what little control he had begin to slip away. He had always hated crying in front of her. You remember when you asked me to marry you? You cried so hard I couldn't even understand what you were saying. But I didn't have to. I could tell that you loved me, and I was so happy to say yes. And then it hit him. So hard he nearly fell out of, the, out of his chair. The pain was so intense he could barely sit still. He wanted to run, to run out of the house, to the street, and never stop. Oh, God. It's okay, Frank. No, it's not. I can't even enjoy the good times without being reminded that they're over. I don't know what to do, Helen. Please help me. I can't do this. I can't face it. But the truth was, he was playing with only himself. He was alone, sitting at a table in the kitchen of an empty house. A house now too painful to live in. How am I supposed to go on, Helen? And what would be the point? I don't know, Frank. There will never be anyone else like you, but I'm supposed to just accept that and move on. You can't change it, Frank. It's just how things are. 
but it's so goddamn unfair, he shouted. I wish heaven was real. Hell, it doesn't even have to be real. I just wish I could believe it. She didn't say anything. I don't want you to become a dream, Helen. I don't want you to become a stranger. I don't want it to be like you were never real. He sat there for hours talking to himself, trying to understand what couldn't be understood, feeling as empty as a coffee mug in front of him. You should eat something, Frank. You've only had coffee. I'm not hungry. What happens now, Helen? He whispered, barely audible. Nothing, Frank. That's always been the logic of a broken life. Grief had hollowed him out. This was the way it was for him every morning of every day. And he knew that if he wanted to keep her, he would have to continue this way. I love you, Helen. I love you too, Frank. Some days he would acknowledge one another days. He couldn't. That nothing he did could ever bind her to him. That healing, in effect, was aching to forgetting. That every minute that ticked away just meant that he was that much further away from her. His grief was the only real connection he still had to her now. And one day he knew she would become only a story. And remembering her would get harder and harder until he couldn't tell whether what he remembered even happened or if he had just made it up. She would be taken from him piece by piece in the middle of the night as he slept, and he would never know the exact moment when he would lose her. This was it. You can go ahead and sit in the waiting room. I will send the images to the doctor. If everything is okay, you can go home. If they need a sonogram exam, someone will come for you. I sit in the tiny waiting room while the other lady goes in. Another woman in a blue gown joins me. I stare at the floor in front of me, hoping nobody comes for me, wishing that this all would be over soon, that everything will be all right. What if it isn't? I'm 42, single professional. I just relocated to Washington, D.C. for a job. I don't have a boyfriend. All my relatives are thousands of miles away across an ocean. And how would they even tell them? Mom is a breast cancer survivor. How would she and dad take it? What about my job? Would it pay for the treatment? Who would be by my side? How long would it take to go through that? Would I make it through? Your perfume smells nice. The soft voice of the lady next to me startles me. Thanks, I barely utter. Where are you from? I hear an accent, she adds. I burst into tears, quietly, unstoppably. The buildup of a week-long fear for my life finds a way out. This emotional climax takes me by surprise and urges me to face the facts. What if I have cancer? I'd get out of this city where I feel lonely. I'd quit my job. I would travel and write. I would surrender myself with the people I love and those who care for me. I would laugh a lot. I would enjoy every day and be true to myself. The hooded figure stood motionless, silhouetted against the hall light. Who are you? I said loudly. I sat on a low stool behind my camera, about 50 feet away from him. I reached for a light stand, loosened the top collar, pulled out the pole, and gripped it at one end as I rose to my feet. It was a desperate move and made me feel more vulnerable than protected, the warm light bleeding from the set making me too visible in the otherwise dark studio. He was smaller than me, a couple of inches under six feet and maybe 180 pounds, but I assumed he was armed. 
You the one took the pictures in the window? He asked. His voice was smooth and high. A young man's voice, without an accent. We're closed. I have a couple of questions. Come back tomorrow at nine. He turned his head to the left and then to the right until he found the overhead light switches and flicked them on. The ceiling fluorescence buzzed to life, bathing the entire studio in harsh green-blue light. He pulled his hood off his head and smiled. I understand your problem. You got a nigger in a hoodie that comes into your studio when the door's locked. I get it. He was dark with bleached and braided hair tumbling down to his shoulders. He looked vaguely familiar. Look, friend, I began. I'm not your friend, he said, and smiled again. But I'd like to be. What do you want? You're a photographer, aren't you? When I didn't answer, he continued. I need my picture taken. Don't you have a cell phone? He laughed. You're pretty funny for an old white man, he paused. Look, I need professional photographs. Not the garbage my friends take with their phones. I want them to look like the pictures in your front window. Those are composite photos. Several images combined to make one, I said. I don't just aim and shoot. That's what I want. I can see that you put a lot of time into each shot. Photoshop? You know about Photoshop? I studied photography as a minor in college. When I didn't reply, he relaxed his pose, affecting a loose-limbed slouch, and said, Yo, bro, dig. I feel you. Damn. Sorry? He straightened up. I can pay you, he said. I assume you have a day rate or an hourly rate. I nodded once. All right. How long would you say a dozen pictures take, assuming they would be as time-consuming as the ones in your window? What's the end use? What do you need them for? My wake, he said without emotion. Once again, those wonderful stories. You just heard Floyd E. Sullivan reading from Composite, Ileana Jankova with What If, Cody Sexton with Just a Little While Longer, and a little bit of a jury story from Susie Jackson. Thanks, writers. Always appreciative of you doing that for us. And remember, we have Volume 3 coming out in the fall, and submissions are still open until mid-July. You can check that out at uh, writershedpress.com. Submissions right there for you. Okay, so let's let's get to me now. And again, I'm, I'm just a little bit reluctant about this, but let me tell you a little bit about who I am, what I do, why I do this, why we do the Writer's Shed uh, podcast, and uh, all of the... Uh, the other things that surround that. Uh, first of all, I think I've always been a writer in some way, or at least a storyteller in some way. Uh, I wrote my very first book when I was probably six or seven years old in school. It was called The Cyclops. It was a deep sea story, and it was very primitive. Uh, but the fun part of it was that we made our books out of paper mache. Our teachers were great about this, and they wanted us to be readers. So we actually made our books, and I still have it. It's called The Cyclops. It was a uh, I think it was inspired a little bit by those old Jacques Cousteau documentaries. So that was my very first book. But I really didn't get serious about writing uh, books or personal essays or memoir in any shape or form fiction um, until I was in my 40s. I had been a journalist for a long time, mainly in broadcasting. Uh, I had done some uh, arts work, some art journalism in the past, and uh, that was my background. Um, But then I took a little bit of a hiatus. kind of a U-turn, if you will, and went back to teaching. I had always taught a little bit on the side in colleges. Um, And I went back and I got my master's in education and I started teaching in a troubled middle school outside of Chicago, a district that had some issues. 
And it was an eye-opening experience. And that turned into a book. The memoir, Accidental Lessons, uh, won a couple of awards. I'm very proud of that book. It's my very first book. I've got a lot of um, you know, sentimental value to that, the first book. Um, and uh, it's about that experience that I had uh, at that school. Uh, several books after that, memoir, fiction, a well-respected man. Uh, one of my fiction books has been well-documented, um, uh, an award winner. I'm happy about that. The Society of Midland Authors um, awarded it, uh, honored it one year, and I was just floored by that, um, humbled by it. There's a follow-up book uh, to that one called Things Behind the Sun, which uh, furthers the story. I, wanna, I don't want to call it a sequel because it's really not, but it, um, it furthers the story from a well-respected man, a fiction uh, book, a novel. Uh, and again, Walks with Sam is my latest book. I've been in broadcasting for a lot of years. I still do radio work uh, here in the Chicago area, and um, I love it. I still love it. Um, I don't want to do it full-time anymore, so I teach. I teach at a college, uh, associate professor at Columbia College Chicago. Continue to do that. Hope to, hopefully continue to do that for a, a little while longer and continue to write almost every single day. I'm working on a novel right now. I have a novel that's done. It's kind of in the drawer. I'm not sure whether it's good enough to see the light of day, but it's there and it's done. And it got me to this next novel, uh, which is about a uh, sort of recluse writer in Ireland, lives on an island by himself. And the story really is about um, place and what we really want to do with our lives, what kind of mark we want to make um, whether it be personal, whether it be grand to the rest of the world, whether it be just uh, the mark of a father to his son. So that's what that story is about. I'm, I'm working on that. I got some, a lot of work still left to do on that. Walks with Sam, as I said, is my latest book that came out last September. It's a memoir. It's about walking your dog one summer. And it's documented walks. Uh, and really it's about how our pets, our animals, our dogs can sometimes help us be human. Uh, Walks with Sam, and that's my latest one. We have a, and the golf book is coming out next year, 2022, in the spring from Round Fire Books in the UK. So that's me. You can always ask me questions. You can find me very easily on uh, on the internet. Uh, search me, find me. You can send me a note at any time you'd like. Uh, whatever you'd like to do, that's fine. But I wanted to at least tell you a little bit about myself, where I come from. Um, and I grew up in Pittsburgh, by the way, not in the Chicago area, but came here in 88 and I've fallen in love with the Midwest. So here I am and that's who I am. I hope that satisfies some of the, uh, questions out there about why I do this and, and what I'm all about. Ridership Press began a few years ago and, uh, the podcast comes out of that. So thanks again. And again, and thanks again for our writers, uh, reading their work today. Thrilled always to have you do that. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter at Writers Shed Press. Uh, you can follow us, of course, in the newsletter. Send me a note through Writers Shed Press, and I'll be happy to put you on the newsletter list. Uh, and that's a growing list, and I greatly appreciate that. And of course, the Writers Shed podcast, always available for you anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>